Welcome to the PK Experience. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the show, and today's guest is a very, very special guest, uh, and I'm very honored to have him on the show. It is my father, Herb King. Um, Aside from just wanting to sit down and have a chat with my dad, I wanted to talk to him uh, about his upbringing because I was very intrigued by this one aspect, which was that he was gay and is gay. And uh, I was just interested to hear a little bit more about what it was like to grow up gay and um, among other things. So quick little background so that you're not completely lost listening to this. My mother, whose name is Sally, and and we reference her in the call, uh, ended up passing on in 2006. And about a year and a half later, my father ended up coming out of the closet and letting us know he was gay. So uh, that had a tremendous impact on me. I remember at the time I just had my son and um, it it really was sort of like a watershed moment for me on a number of reasons. Number one, um, my mother was very Christian and conservative and um, the whole idea, as you probably are well aware of, like the whole idea of homosexuality, is it a sin, is it not a sin, is it a choice, is it not a choice, like all this stuff was going on in my head and plus I'm also thinking like, whoa, 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 how does... Christian conservative mom, Mary, you know, gay dad, like all these thoughts and questions. It, it, it just was kind of took me a while to, to process all of that. Um, and so we talk about that a little bit. Uh, and as I mentioned, I had just had my son. And so the idea of being a father um, and what it meant to be a man and all those things kind of really started showing up in my life. And uh, those deeper questions were things that I wanted to get answers to, and and you know for a large part my father wasn't around growing up. Of course, that had nothing really to do with the fact that he's gay. It just he was working all the time. Well, it sort of did because he was hiding, you know, his secret being gay, and and so he turned to uh, work and to food. And so he, you know, I grew up watching my dad just work his butt off all the time. I barely saw him as a child. I have very few memories with him as a child because um, he was just working so hard. And uh, and then he ate a lot. So he was very overweight. Um, we get into this a little bit in the call and, and how after my mom died and, and after he started owning his own truth, that he ended up just shedding literally over 100 pounds very, very quickly um, because of the baggage that he was no longer carrying. So um, that's a little bit of the background. I won't uh, bore you anymore with that now because we're going to dive into that right now with with him, and it's better coming from him, I guess. So um, I'd love to get any feedback that you have on this, especially if you are gay and or if you have gay relatives. Um, There's certainly some key takeaways in this call that I think will be very enlightening and or entertaining for you. Um, and so I'd like to hear from that, hear from you on that. And, uh, if you're listening to this, you can find me online at www.pkexperience.com. And, uh, I'd love to have you drop a message uh, or a comment and let me know what you think about this episode. But with that, let's dive into the call. Thanks for listening. I think, hello, test, test. All right. I can do it. All right. Well, this is, it's official. <laughs> What's official? The, the, we've been talking about doing a podcast forever, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think this is great. Finally doing it. Yeah. Um, so I have no agenda, really. Uh, I mean, there was a couple things, as I mentioned to you yesterday, that I wanted to, that, that I thought would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think ultimately just, I think it's kind of a cool opportunity to 
chat, get to know a little bit more, you know, have, have a conversation that could enlighten me on some of your experience and stuff like that. And, sure. and then, so anyway, um, so the one interesting thing that I shared with you yesterday is just this whole idea of growing up gay and yeah. what did that mean and, yeah. and how did that affect you? And, yeah. um, so, you know, I'm just asking from a, from a open-ended, curious perspective. Yeah. I mean, obviously our culture has changed a ton. Yeah. It's much more readily acceptable today. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, so... In parts of the world. Well, yeah. I mean, not at least in the States. Right. Yeah. I, Most... Well, even in the States there are issues. There, of course there's still issues. I'm just saying it's... Yeah. It's more acceptable, mm-hmm. right, than mm-hmm. it was 40 years ago. Yeah. So, we've had conversations before. You mentioned that you knew when you were a kid, mm-hmm. right? And for the listeners, um, uh, you know, you obviously got married to mom. You want me to tell the story? <laughs> sure. I know the story better than you do. Yes. I was there. You were there. <laughs> I was there. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. no, misquote you. No, um, I'll set the stage, so to speak. Um, you know, at like whatever it was, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, I knew I was different. I knew something was different, and uh, you know how I looked at little girls and how I looked at little boys and so forth. In any case, um, I grew up um, hiding, and then when your mom and I got married, uh, we got engaged. Then we got unengaged because I didn't want to get engaged, uh, not telling her the truth. Then I decided to tell her the truth, so we got reengaged after we determined that it was something we both wanted to do, meaning we wanted to spend our lives together um, because of how much love we had for one another. And she was my best friend. And every place I'd go, I'd say, oh, Sally, I'd love this or Sally, I'd love that. You know, so I knew I was um, wanting to spend more time with her. So ultimately, we got married. And um, through, you know, from the early ages of, uh, like I said, eight or ten, whatever it was, um, I was in hiding. And... Um, you know, you asked me how that is, and I could say it was horrible. I could say it was really horrible. But it wasn't, because that's what people did. You know, it was the norm. It was sort of like, how was it growing up straight? You know, how horrible don't, was don't, that? Don't, yeah, don't, don't even, even go started. there. Don't even go there. Yeah. <laughs> so it was. it's just different. It's just different. Um, so, all right, now I set the stage for you. So what's your question? So, I mean, I, I, now that... My mom has passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've just I've always been curious as to. So she was obviously fully aware. Yeah. That you were gay. Yep. Um, and I had a hard time reconciling that for a while mm-hmm. after she passed because I felt like why you know why would she knowing her and knowing how much she wanted to be in a you know a connected romantic relationship. Right. Um, and I had a hard time trying to figure that out. I remember. Uh, at uh, the personal development program that I was in yeah. where we had to sit down and write a letter to our parents. Right. And I'm like, well, my mom has passed on. They said, write it anyway. Yeah. So I started to write it and I, I got really just, I mean, just sitting down in the, the activity of writing it out, I don't know for whatever reason sort of shifted my perspective, but I started to see things a little bit more through her eyes and, and I was kind of blaming her a little bit. Like, why would you, why would you not have enough respect to, be in a relationship where you could give and receive on a level that you desired, you know, and then all of a sudden it just occurred to me how 
how she used to always say how much she was, how, um, what's the word, uh, strict her environment was growing up. Right. And I can, Extremely strict. Extremely strict. Yeah. And I can only imagine you coming along <laughs> and her going, this is so outside of my stuffy, strict, con- you know, constrained <laughs> environment. Here's this ridiculous yeah. guy yep. that's having fun and is breaking all the rules. That yeah. must have seemed very attractive to her. Yeah. And I thought, how liberating well, that I must should, have been. I shouldn't say... Breaking all the rules was not what I was about. I mean, I'm, as an entrepreneur, I'm breaking all the rules. You know, I, I don't get stuck in the, the box. Right. But, um, yeah, you're, I cut you off, but um, I can answer your your concern a little bit because I've come to the conclusion because, you know, we didn't really talk a lot about it. She never brought it up, never ever brought it up. But we were best friends. Right. And we wanted, we for five, six years while we were dating on and off, we just kept coming back to each other because we had more fun together than we had apart. And if you look at the fact that she put family first and because her strict background built this foundation of family values, she put family first. So there really was no out for either one of us. Once we committed to one another, it never occurred to me in my life to ever divorce. Yeah. That wasn't anything a yeah. part of it. We, we had our ups and downs as a result of um, me being, be, being gay but uh, we also had five kids. Yeah. So from the outside looking in, we had a traditional family. And that's what she focused on. She absolutely focused on that. And I honestly have come to the conclusion also that she felt through her love for me that she would change me. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't ever give me um, jabs. She never, I mean, she was an amazing woman because she allowed everyone in the family to learn their own lessons. She didn't. You know, she didn't say you're going to fall. You know, don't don't do that. You're going to fall. She let you fall, and you learn to get up and do it again. Yeah. So she never brought up my weight. She never brought up I was gay. She never brought up that I interrupted her or I wasn't listening. Yeah, she did mention that a few times. <laughs> Come to think of it, more than a few you, times. You didn't hear her. You weren't listening. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in any case, yeah, she did bring that up. But you know, the fundamental things she allowed me to experience my own journey and. Do it on my timetable. Yeah. So, um, do you, do you feel the whole idea of her, you know, desiring or wanting to change you? Does that? Do, how do you feel about that? I think from her Christian loving healing background, right. that was just who, who she was. That was what I was attracted to. She never accepted um, any um, any form of limitation. She was all about abundance. But does does that hurt on some level to? To feel that that was a perceived limitation. Well, yeah, I because I loved her so much, and I love her so much. I should say, I wanted to meet her expectations, mm-hmm. and in retrospect, you know, that's a regret because I couldn't be everything that I knew she needed to be, right. that she needed to have in her life, right. And that that's a regret. But on the other hand, I don't regret the fact that we made the commitment to each other. Yeah. And we had an amazing life. You were there for part of it. <laughs> it was really fun. It was oh, really yeah. Fun. Because, now I remember. Because we do unexpected stuff, which just, I just remember one time we were dating and she had this cute red convertible, red uh, Camaro convertible with white interior. And um, she told me as she was leaving the house, her mother yells after her and says to her, be good. That's all her mother says is be good. Now, you know, and you're 20 years old or whatever, yeah. or 21, whatever, 
And she was coming to meet me, and we had been dating for a long time, and her mother knew it. And she says, be good. And her, Sally says, I really want to yell back to her, it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. Did she really say that? Yeah, she That's said fun, that. Yeah. And I, it's just confirmation. She, uh, she didn't abhor the strict foundation that she was raised in. Yeah. She just loved getting outside that box. Yeah, I feel like you can breathe again a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it was very strict. Well, and that's what I meant by you being a rule breaker. I think not that you were constantly breaking rules, but right. from her pers- limited perspective of, of so much rules in her life, right. like you were, let's let's go create something outside of that yeah. outside of the box. Yeah. So I, I I you know, the older I get and the more experience I get with relationships and parenting and all that, the more empathy I have and more respect I have for your relationship that you guys have because from a from a more immature, less experienced perspective, it was why would you guys do that to each other? What you know, why did you not live your truth and and live a more free life and, and whatever? Why didn't mom do that? But Looking back, you can see there was a real attraction there. There was a real need, there, you know, a purpose in the relationship. Right. And that that elevated you both to, you know, a happier state, which is a far cry from where a lot of relationships are. Yeah, you know, and I, I think in a lot of regard, uh, at the time we got married, everybody was getting married. All gay guys. How are you going to say everyone was gay? <laughs> no, all gay guys were getting married. Right. I mean, it was a place to hide. Or they went in the priesthood or whatever they do. Um, in any case... That's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but I added variety to her life and safety. Right. And she wanted both. She wanted both. So if you look at... If you contrast to where she was as being raised in this very strict... She was the third child, but she was like an only child because her older brothers were much older than she was. 13 years difference on the uh, to the next oldest brother. Um and her parents had matured a lot, and they were a little more flexible, but their little more flexible was very restrictive as far as her perception and my perception, most people's perception, fundamental kind of approach, which was absolutely uh, valuable in the long run because that's who she was. She was very black and white. She wasn't gray. She knew what she wanted, and she reached out for it, and she got it, mm-hmm. which is we had that so much in common because we knew where we wanted to go, um, as a couple. Yeah. Um, growing up, did your parents know? No, I never told them. I never told them until my mother was 83, I think. Okay. How did she take that, by the way? Oh, that was, I, that was an interesting conversation. Yeah? I'd had a conversation with all your children individually. Right. And then I thought, now, do I tell my mom or not? And I'd asked all the kids to keep it confidential, as you recall. And then I, I thought, you know... Out of respect for her, I didn't want her hear it, hearing it from anybody else because I knew it would eventually get out. I mm-hmm. knew it would eventually get out because of the tight community that we live in. And so I called her, and I'm sitting at the top of the neighborhood here uh, for like a half an hour, explaining it to her, and all she does is giggle through the whole thing. <laughs> and I, I don't... My mom was a whole different... That's a whole other conversation. But she just giggles through the whole thing, and, and I said, you know, should I... Excuse me, should I take offense that you're giggling through this whole thing? And she says, no, I just want you to be happy. I said, well, that's exactly what every gay person wants to hear from their parents. Yeah. I just want you to be happy. Yeah. What, who has any more right to be happy than every single one of us? Yeah. And there's no restriction on happiness. There shouldn't be. And it shouldn't be controlled by anybody. Right. 
just mutual love, mutual respect for wherever people are at. So then I got to tell you the funny story. So I drive home after I hang up the phone and I get home and the phone is ringing and she's on the phone again and she says, uh, I just have one question. She says, I just have one question. I said, what's that? And she said, is there anything that I, and I cut her off. I said, no, you are not responsible for me being gay uh-huh. and you're not responsible for me being successful. I've done this all by myself. Mm-hmm. Because moms or parents in general wanted, they sometimes take ownership for children's failures yeah. because they f- they feel they let them down. Yeah. And I knew that's where she was going. I knew that's where she was going. Yeah. I had a great relationship with my mom. Um, we did lots of things together, and I, I think it was a shock to her system. But on the other hand, she handled it pretty well. Yeah. She handled it pretty well. How do you, I mean, your dad <laughs> passed on, obviously, um, when you came out. How do you think he would have taken it? Um... Lord knows how he would have taken it. I let's see. I don't he, think he, he would be giggling. <laughs> no, he probably wouldn't be giggling. He never responded the way you expected him to respond. Um, I think over time he would have figured it out and respond responded with love. Yeah. But I think at first it would have been a, a shock to him. And again, the same thing. The dad generally will say, "Oh yeah, I wonder what's wrong with me." You know, uh-huh. is this is, is this a result of me? Yeah, is there something I didn't do or did do, or is it genetics or whatever? Does it come from my genes? Blah blah blah. So I think that may have been his approach, but I have no idea. Yeah. I really don't know. Um, oh, I was just gonna ask you something. Uh, it slipped my mind. Um, shoot. So. Um, when when you did grow up, oh, I was going to say um, you mentioned before about coming out and and how it, that information was confidential. Yeah. You wanted to keep that, yeah. and I remember that. And I and I, you know, I don't know if we've followed up on this conversation, but I remember trying to tell you before um, that in a way was I I was coming out too. I my, my father was gay. Yeah, that was my news. I remember yeah. you kept saying this is my news to share, my news to share. And of course, on on some level now, especially now looking back, I, I get that and I respect that. But at the time, eight years. It's been eight, eight or nine years, or is it ten years? It's ten. been like yeah, it's been like ten years. Yeah, it's a long time, right? But at the time, like that was a ton. Like that totally came out of left field for me, uh, way out in left field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, did you know like when you so you started going around and telling all the kids? So and I I I think I was the last to know. I think you were because yeah. I was. On vacation, yeah, you yeah, told you I didn't want, whatever I said. I well, were you living in Florida? No, I was in vacationing in Florida. But okay. I two years prior to that, we had a similar sort of vibe where it was like we need to tell you something about mom. Oh yeah, yeah. and so you know, there's a lot of fear that. Sure. And so my first thought was, is everything okay? Yeah. And then so when some of the other of my other siblings found out, I'm like, what's you know, can the big do deal? I need to know this right away? And they would kind of laugh and go, no. Really and I'm like, what, what is going on? They just talk to dad. You need to talk to dad. <laughs> so for a while, I was like, what the hell is... The, the information I, with your mom was about her passing, but no, this is, this is something different. Yeah, this was yeah, different. Okay. So I was, trying, I was racking my brains, like, what could it possibly be? And for a while, I thought, maybe I'm, maybe I'm adopted. I was like, oh, that'd be kind of, that'd be kind of cool. That'd be kind of a cool story. I never heard you say that. That's funny. Um, yeah. Well, frankly, that's something I wanted to tell you about today. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, now that we're live, live. Um, no, but the just the um, coming out with that news. I mean, I remember when you told me, like, 
and and if anybody's listening to this who has gay children, or I'm sorry, who's gay and they're revealing, like it's it's. Whenever I tell people that you're gay, they always immediately they always go, "Oh my gosh, it must be so you know courageous for you to come out. It must be so hard." And that's all true, but there's very very little support and or how are you doing as the children? Yeah. And and so when you told me and when you told all of us, like there was a whole processing that we needed to do. And there's there really wasn't a lot of outlet for people that could appreciate or understand no. the the record scratch in our life, yeah, you know, you had that, to that seek was out somebody to talk to. We him. did, which is why, which was part of my frustration that when I went to do that, I think, you know, you got upset because it was your information to share. And I'm like, I have information to share too. I have a gay dad. You don't. Yeah. That's my information. That's my news to share. Right. Uh, that I get to process. So I think there was some, you know, we were not on the same page for a little right. while there. Um, Don't you think it's emotional maturity? I mean, if you're going to put it under our chapter heading, it's emotional maturity. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. but but how how do you get that maturity? Like sometimes you go through things to, yeah. to get that perspective or whatever. And yep. Um, but I remember it was funny because for a lot of my life, you know, I, I mean, I I have friends that are, have just had horrible childhood upbringings from you know, rape and, yeah. um, destitution and all this horrific stuff. And I, and I jokingly, and obviously you have to have some level of rapport and friendship when, when I say this, so take that into full context, but jokingly with this one friend of mine, I said, well, you know, cry me a river. You have no idea what it's like to have a mother that loves you unconditionally and a father that does very well financially. Like, do you have any clue how hard it is <laughs> to be a nobody? Like I was so sheltered and there was no, who am I? You know, so because I look at a lot of people that have dealt with a lot of, you know, trauma or, or, but there's an edge and there's a, like, there's a, they can push off of that in their life. Like it drives them to achieve, it drives them to whatever. And so when you finally, you know, when you told us Mm -hmm. you're gay, like it was kind of like, ah, like I have a, I have a story. Like it became my excuse for everything, (laughs) you know, like, uh, you know, I, I think I, my leg was hurting one day and I was limping. Yeah. And my one of my friends was like, you know, is everything okay? I'm like, well, I mean, my dad is gay, so you wouldn't you wouldn't know. <laughs> like it was just my excuse for everything <laughs> for a while. Yeah. So well, I'm glad I was fodder for your for your need at well, the time. Yes, that's that's what you're good for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On that on that note, I should say, you know, you've always had a really um Good sense of humor, sometimes inappropriate sense of humor. Like no, <laughs> me, yeah, I don't think so. Or you know, you but you must have me confused with somebody else. <laughs> I I often tell people that you know my mom taught me character, but my da- dad taught me how to be a character. And honestly, that dichotomy at first, like for a long time, it was hard for me to to figure out how that relationship worked, but. Being a child in that relationship, it's allowed me to have such a wide, you know, uh, experience from mom being so Christian and conservative and uh, introverted and family oriented, and then you being, you know, extroverted and go big or go home and funny and a little bit edgy and, you know, go travel the world and see all everything. So, Trying to find the balance and love both has, for me, helped me sort of connect to all different 
types of people and experiences yeah. or whatnot. That's cool. I love hearing that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, no wonder you're so happy and fulfilled. Well, now. Now. Yeah, it took a while. You know, and that was interesting because um, right after, probably within a year or six months after I came out, I was telling people how each one of you kids was responding. And when I, well, I risked a lot to come out. Yeah. I risked a lot because I thought every one of you could, could choose to walk away. Just could slam the door and say, I can't deal with this or you don't deserve to be here. Whatever the normal human excuse is for people who don't like gays. So in any case, I risked that. But I also, I looked at my cards and I thought, okay, one of the two parents are, is gone. Sally's passed. So they only have one parent. So are they going to invest in the existing remaining parent or not? I thought, well, probably over time they'll figure it out. Well, so this friend says to me, he says, how long have you been gay? And I said, well, I'm 61 uh, years old at this point. I can think that's what it was 10 years ago. And he says, and how long have the kids known you've been gay? And I said, well, you know, if it matter months. And he said, well, give them some time. <laughs> give them time to get accustomed to this. Yeah. Get them, let them work it through their, their heads. And I thought that was really great advice because, you know, I had to deal with it all my life, but you'd only dealt with it for a matter of months at the time. And no wonder people's reaction was, you know, it's a little knee-jerk reaction at first. It's like deer in the headlights. But over time... I think it's like anything in life, especially it's most hurtful when it's relationships, when it's broken trust. And I knew it was a perception of broken trust mm -hmm. because you thought I was one kind of person. Yeah. You know, you sort of had me in a box. And then I came out of that box as a whole different uh, person, only from the standpoint that now you knew my sexual preferences. Yeah. You know, that's that's the only difference. Otherwise, I am who I am. And, you, you know, you basically knew who I was. But it was like... Giving that kind of information to the world about what your sexual preference is, you know, is a freeing event for me. Yeah. It's huge to come out and be all of who I can be. And let me tell you, I know you're going to ask this question. <laughs> what does it mean to come out? Uh, Isn't that the... I that just was, wrote that down. I thought that's, that's what... That's why you're reading. I'm reading it's upside incredible. down. But what, what it meant to me was, what I learned in this whole experience is that... Um, before I was out, I was hiding. So imagine every single day of your life, everything that you that came close to uh, having to do with relationships or sexual connotations or jokes or whatever it might be, I had to respond as though I were gay, I, as though I were straight. And consequently, there was, I had this filter in front of me. Every single thing, almost every single thing, had to be filtered. I didn't want people in business to know. I couldn't let people at church know. I couldn't let people at your schools know. I couldn't let my family know. I couldn't let anybody know. Because I, I was, a, for some, a lot of the time, I was ashamed of it. Yeah. But as I dropped that filter by coming out and being honest, an amazing thing happened. And the amazing thing that happened was I went from, I could love other people, but I started loving myself more, which enabled me to love more genuinely, deeper, and a greater, um, a greater perception of how to express love was emerging. Because otherwise, it was like standing in front of a mirror, and the mirror was the filter. Everything I said and did had to, got reflected back into my thought. So it was mainly about me, yeah. because I was so fearful. Yeah. So I was living a life based on fear and lack of potential lack of love because an acceptance mm -hmm. and everybody wants to be accepted everybody wants to be loved so 
that's where I was. I was like on the precipice of a mountaintop and I was going to fall. I was on the cliff and I was about to fall. And then I thought, you know, if I were to free myself, if I were to come out, I think there'd be a lot of value in that for me as far as being able to express everything that I was. It's sort of like, you know, in a job, if you have an eight and a half by 11 job, just description, and yet you're very creative and they don't allow you to be creative. Did you just say eight and a half by 11 job? Eight and a half by 11 job, yeah. What do you mean? That's a letter, well, you know, that's a job description on a, oh, on I, a piece of paper. That's what people meant, live in. I thought you meant nine to five job. Got no, it. No, 11 and a half by 11 job. Okay. The job description. They're stuck in that job description. And when you venture out of that, they slap your hand and tell you to go back in. So you're not allowed to be all of who you can be. Yeah. So as a business owner at that point in my life, I knew, um, I mean, I've witnessed in my own experience how I've been able to express more of my creativity more freely. Um, I'm Because I no longer think of myself, I have more time to think of others and to be more respectful and be more generally grateful and abundance is a reflection of gratitude in my opinion yeah so i i look at so many things including this conversation as an opportunity to express abundance yeah express gratitude yeah and just be um humbly grateful that i've taken this journey and the risk you know entrepreneurs love risk i love risk yeah but this was this was probably the riskiest thing i ever did and yeah I, I i i heard somebody say one time they they asked what was the what's the most important attribute you could express, and I thought well you know honesty or love or uh, principle you know whatever is it and then it occurred to me it's really courage, because nothing courage by having courage in your vocabulary, is basically and expressing it is basically setting yourself free. Courage is pushing through the fear, pushing through the risk, getting out of the clouds into the light. And when you let that sun, that sunlight shine on you and you can express all of who you are, you are totally free. Yeah. Happiness is within your grasp. If you live in the fear and the lack, you know, you're in the dark, You're it's a gray cloud all day long. And what do people in Minnesota do? They go to Florida. They're seeking <laughs> the sun. That's what they do. That's where I grew up. I grew up in Minnesota and it was, you know, cloudy from October until May. And this is like jumping out of a... Um, that environment into the sunshine, and it's just it's just the best thing I ever did. But I'm grateful that so much good has come of it. Well, you know, I, I mean, from my perspective growing up, <clears throat> you were, you know, obviously you were working your butt off, so that took up a lot of your time and mental and emotional energy. But even outside of that, you know, there, there really wasn't a lot of presence for... Me and the other siblings, well, I'll just say for me, like, right. I didn't even really know you. And so I, I would say, you know, there really was two people. There was the hiding Herb and, you know, obviously the overweight and, um, you know, I would even say to some level narcissistic, like you were saying, it was all focused on you. And, and looking back now, I can kind of see why that would be the case. As you just said, like you're sort of always focused on yourself because you're always defending and thinking about perspective. And let's you, look at the word narcissistic for a second, right? And kind of look, analyze it relative to me, and maybe others in politics and so forth, and other places we see it. Generally, narcissistic, in my opinion, means the thing about themselves, which comes from 
greed because they really want it to be all about them. Yeah. And what is greed? What's the foundation for greed? It's fear. Fear of lack of control, fear of enough good, fear of abundance, fear of um, all the fear based. Yeah. So as you let go and you are completely out, out in this case, in my case, all that drops away. All that drops away. So the appearance, you know, if you go back and you look or look at around you, anybody that appears to be narcissistic, it's really that they're fearful. Totally. They're fearful of being seen. They're yep. fearful of being who they truly are meant to be. And maybe they get in the habit of being so focused on themselves and the fear or the greed appears, you know, maybe it's all about adoration. People, they want adoration, whether they're an actor or whatever it might be. I was so drawn to acting because I wanted that love. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I had a great fear of lack of love. Yes. So, but that's my point is like growing up with you still in the closet, like it did seem from my perspective that it was always, always about you. And then after you came out, it was like the, almost like a complete reversal after a, you know, period of a small transition period. Reversal of, of what? Of now all your energy is outward. It's yeah. all about like you're like what you're saying right now, abundance and and serving and you know, now I see you um you know helping other people financially without seeking any attention. Mm-hmm. You know? Um and I've heard stories from other people, did you know that your dad blah 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 and no, I didn't know that. You know, and so you know, I, as I've often said, mom taught me character, you taught me how to be a character. The last 10 years, you've really actually showed me a lot more about character and and values because of your congruency, mm-hmm. you know, and you're not hiding and you're not, you know, it is interesting from a perspective of narcissism because I've talked to many other people who feel like they're in relationships with narcissists. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, that narcissism is is a fear of being seen like yeah. that, that imposter syndrome really you know, kicks in. I, I have to say in my case, um, thanks to you kids. Um, I, I was introduced to seeking self-awareness, understanding myself. And yeah. I wanted to understand what I call recently read a book about legacy baggage and legacy baggage is what's passed down to us from our parents. And then the question is, you know, we be, we all say, Oh, I, I don't want to ever be like my mom and dad. Then we all end up like our mom and dad. You know, (laughs) I don't want to be like him. He drove me crazy, blah, blah, blah. But um, that legacy baggage is the negative qualities that our parents express that we can cast off once we are Mm self-aware. So as I came out and I started seeking more self-awareness to understand more about why I do what I do, um, I've been able to unpack so much baggage and... Although this is really interesting, as much as you think you unpack, you still carry a lot with you. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's never a, a learning a stop to the learning curve. Yeah. Which I also I, I like that because there's always a deeper um, a level that you can understand. I just recently had an aha moment because my mother was raised by an alcoholic, and every time she went to him for love, he'd push her away because he was in so much pain himself. That's why he was hiding in the alcohol. So as I was raised, neither one of our parents said they loved us. They never really held us or hugged us. Um, they never touched one another. They never held hands. They had five children. Um, <laughs> Explain so, that one. Yeah, yeah. So obviously there was some need being met there. <laughs> so in any case, um, you know, I, I had that baggage to 
sort through. And like you, writing on a piece of paper, um, I did the same thing. I wrote a letter to my mother. And I told her how much I loved her and what she'd done for me and all. But I blamed her for a lot of the broken trust. And as I'm writing this down, I'm realizing she was coming from a place of fear. Her whole life was based on fear. Yeah. Fear because she wasn't loved. She her perception probably was that she wasn't loved by her father. She wasn't truly loved by her husband. Or I, I just remember there was a lot of uh, a lot of arguing and um, um, unhappiness in the family in the earlier years. I think over time they did finally have a, a better uh, relation working relationship. But as I wrote that letter, I recognized that I make the same mistakes yeah. based on fear. Yeah. So and doesn't everybody, you know, are we all above not making decisions based on emotional fear? So I loved learning that, you know, fear is based on uh, emotion, but um, decisions made when you engage your brain is is truly responding. Yeah. So we shouldn't react. That's what I was trying to get to is react. We shouldn't react. We should respond. Yeah. So all these years that I'm doing self-awareness, I'm beginning to respond rather than react. Mm-hmm. And up till then, I was always from pillar to post reacting to whatever the situation might be, whether it's in my business, in my relationships, my children, my family. I was always reacting. Now I respond. Do you? How much of your business success do you associate to desiring to be seen or to be loved? Or if at all? Well, going way back, I mentioned I wanted to be an actor because I really wanted to be on stage. I really I love that idea of adoration and the applause and whatever it might be. But over the years, I I had an initial goal of not living the way my parents lived. They was kind of, it was My childhood was rather hand-to-mouth because my dad was an entrepreneur and a contractor and he never really made much money and with five mouths to feed it was always pillar to post so um i decided i would work smart rather than hard because he was a laborer and um i got from him one of the wonderful things i got from him was, was the, the work ethic mm-hmm. he just worked all the time he didn't have a choice he had to work he had multiple jobs and didn't matter what season it was he'd find a job because uh, contractors were mainly summertime so I carried that work ethic into my business, and I also carried this passion for uh, success, financial uh, independence. And while along that path, it was probably when we moved to St. Louis 50, 20 years later after we got married, that Sally turned to me and she said, I figured you out. I said, what do you mean you figured me out? <laughs> and I think, what's this going to be? Right. She said, you love the game. And... She was referring to me loving the game of business, and I do. I love I love learning. I love trying things. I love falling flat on my face and getting back up again. And every time uh, today, as I understand self-awareness, that I fall, I can understand how much of it is not about me. Mm. It used to be all about me. Mm-hmm. Now I see that it's really other people's problems that they're reacting. They're reacting to a lesser thought. And honestly, once you understand that, it gives you enormous self, uh, self-awareness self and power from that self-awareness. And that the power I'm referring to is controlling our thoughts, choosing our thoughts, spending how much time do we spend in that space of fear and lack. And I thought, my the abundance in my life is really a result of um, spending less time on fear and lack. 
I spend more time on abundance. So mm-hmm. if there's there are going to be thoughts in our heads that constantly flow into our heads, well, if it's fear and lack that dominates your mental conversation, that's where you're going to end up. That's right. how you're going to respond to everything. Right. You know, if you have original sin to deal with, or you have fear of uh, loss, or uh, fear of um, disease, or fear of whatever it might be, um, you respond a certain way to that, or you react in this case. It's an emotional reaction. But once you start filling your head with gratitude and abundance, that's what you see. Mm -hmm. You know, there is... I, I keep thinking, I could start a business tomorrow because I, I could sit in this room and come up with 20 ideas of how to start a business because I see abundance. I see opportunity. That's always been one of your geniuses is is opportunity and and ideas. Yeah. Right? I mean, you've yeah, always... That's been one of your... It's just natural. Yeah. Like you're I love a, to brainstorm. Yeah. You're an idea machine. And people... Yeah. You know, I always hear people who want to talk to you and come back and they go, oh my gosh, I can't believe your dad gave me so many great ideas. Da, da, da. Um I think Which, all of the, my children do that too. They're all entrepreneurs. You're, yeah. You and the four siblings are all entrepreneurs. Yeah, entrepreneurial, I should yeah. say. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I honestly, for me, recently in the last maybe even year or two, become to better understand. What is one of our phones is going crazy? That would be your phone. That would be my phone. <laughs> it's supposed to be shut off. Okay. Um, Sorry. So, you know, one of the things that we learned in uh, one of the personal development programs that we went into is, you know, what type of person are you? There's the entrepreneur, the artist, and the leader, right? Right. And um, I'm more the artist. Mm -hmm. But I've, I've, I've tried to reconcile over the last year or two as I've become more and more aware of what that really means. And as an artist, my intention is to make an impact first. Mm-hmm. Whereas you're an entrepreneur and your intention is to grow ideas and make money and live in financial abundance. And so there's obviously there's been a huge rub off on me as far as the entrepreneurial environment and my desire to you know create wealth and create ideas and, and be in business. Yeah. But I'm I'm becoming better, I'm understanding more my intention to actually be an artist. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to reconcile that a little bit and let go of the idea of potentially of being, you know, very, very financially abundant as my first intention. Right. As, and, and switch more into like, how can I just make impact? And then let the, let the money be a byproduct of the impact that much, I make. Much healthier approach. For me. Yeah. Right? For some people. You're right. Well, and I would say it's not that you're not looking to make an impact. You're absolutely like, no. It's all about for me. It's all about value creation. Yes. Finding solutions for problems, and that blesses mankind. And as you, it's sort of like being Garth Brooks or any one of the uh, recorders. It's exactly like Garth Brooks. Well, it is because <laughs> there's music that we provide in the harmony of solving problems. And when people's problems are solved, we get a tiny little piece of many, many people's blessings. So yeah. Garth Brooks gets a royalty off every time his music is played, I assume. I'm just I'm guessing. Right. And he has multi-million followers that love, love his music. Well, if you create a solution that blesses many, many people, then you're going to get a little tiny piece of a huge, huge pie. See, that's that's exactly my point is you you look at all that and you go, your mind is focused on a little bit of piece of all of that, which is representative of the good. Yeah. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. Like that to me is, 
it's ju- it's your nature, and I'm glad that it's like it it drives the economy. Like we're all blessed by people who are who are driving that, and and I like the fact that you actually have values. You know, your values driven in it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people that just want to make money just for their own significance right. or whatever. But money originally was my goal. Yeah. And then later on, I recognized it was the game. And during the 20 years I spent in New York, I was in television time sales. And everything was sold on demographics. So women 25 to 54, 18 to 49, or 18 to 34, whatever it was, 24 to 54, whatever the demographic was that they were seeking, we were running those numbers all the time for each one of the major markets in the country. So when they wanted to buy L.A., I had to do a cost per thousand. So my mind started to think, how can I create the biggest a package of time for my customer, for the advertising agencies that represent P&G or whoever it might be, the largest package possible for the least amount of money. So my mind started to be constantly, every single day, I was looking bigger and bigger and bigger. That's when I probably started saying around the house to all of you, you know, let's think bigger. Yeah. You know, if you want to make 10000 put a zero on it. Come on, let's think big. Let's go for a 100 <laughs> Right. Let's find a way to go to a 100 right. Today, they say, you know, if you're at... A million, why not add a zero? Let's add two more zeros. Let's yeah. go to, let's say three and get to a billion. Yeah. Why not find a new way? Yeah. And it's all about getting, like I said, outside that box. Yeah. We are so educated to be in the box. Yep. I mean, this conversation is really maybe outside the box a little bit, but we're educated to stay within the box. Yeah. You know, so then you might say, you know, what does it mean as a legacy to being gay? How, how you know one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is legacy lately, uh-huh. and I'm thinking legacy, especially if if you have some wealth to pass down, or even if it's a wealth of character character qualities you want to express in your family. You know what is the uh, how do we go about making sure that the legacy is passed down? Well, through education, I read this great book called um, Intentional Legacy that my brother gave me, and it talks about. Um, the importance of the family communication from the parents to the child to the child from the child to his children, his offspring, and so forth. Every generation being re-educated in the stories. And you know, you know, you think about Indians; they used to talk about the folklore, and it was all these stories. Yeah. We don't tell stories as much anymore. Yeah. We don't sit around the dining room table anymore. You know, that's where the stories got told. What so, What story do you want people to tell about you, as far as your legacy goes? Um, I think. I uh, really haven't completely decided on that, but I've been thinking a lot about it. And I think it's, it isn't about gay. Maybe it's about the courage yeah. of coming out. Yeah. So let's focus on the courage and the courage of relating to overcoming fear, overcoming obstacles. And when obstacles came in front of Herb, how did he respond? Did he quit? I just recently had a friend ask me about some uh, cash flow issues. And I had them back in the day. And there was so much fear, fear of losing everything. I'd, I'd leveraged everything I'd worked 25 years for to get in business. And then I was going to lose everything, but I found myself a different bank. I realized that the reason I didn't have the, the funds is I didn't have the right source. Right. I wasn't had the appropriate source. So, you know, I could be dealing with the biggest bank in the world, which sounds really great, but as a little tiny entrepreneur, they don't know how to respond to me. I don't know how they to respond care. to them. We don't even speak the same language. Right. Bankers are conservative. You know, They're wearing white shirts and ties still. So you need to find a bank that's more entrepreneurial. So 
I think that the courage is what I want to pass down. I want to work ethic, um, abundance. These are qualities that I think that the conversation should always relate to. And then we say, the reason we have this wealth in our family, wealth of love, a wealth of um, abundance, whatever it might be, is because we we accept that foundation for the way we think. Yeah. If you want to, if you, if you don't accept that, then don't be surprised with your your the results. Yeah. I I would agree with that a lot. That that the story of you is a lot about courage, is a lot about work ethic. Um, I think. Also, in there is thinking big for sure, and and why not? Like, add had a couple zeros to it. Sure. Let's, what does that look like? Yeah. We're going to go to the effort of of feeling a little bit outside our comfort zone. Let's go to the effort of being way outside our comfort right. zone. What's the difference? Right, and then you, but then you manage to pull it off in a lot of respects. I mean, obviously you've had your your hiccups too, but um, but then I think you can't. I don't think you can t- tell an appropriate story or an accurate story about you without adding the humor because you've always yeah. had. Oh, yeah. Humor is probably a part of it, sure. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I said this to you a long time ago. There are, two, there are two parts of it. I think that the humor is important, and I love that. Is like, I call that um, like an enhancement to life. Because um, humor is like the anecdote. You know, everybody has different uh, approaches to their lives. But if, humor seems to reduce stress and fear and lack because you can, you can see yourself differently when yeah. you laugh and when you... And not take yourself quite so seriously. Tell tell the story of uh, your dad and his glass eye. Oh gosh! Well, <laughs> you mean when I found it? Yeah. So my parents are out that night. Well, first of all, tell them what tell oh, people oh, yeah. about his eye situation. Well, when I grew up, I, my dad never talked about it, but he had his left eye apparently had been poked out as a child, and he had this glass eye, and I knew it was different, but, and I fi- finally figured that out, and he never really talked about it, my mother never really talked about it, so one night they were out, and I was probably 13, 12, 13 years old, and you know how you kind of go through your parents' stuff, just to see what they what they do, and <laughs> What's the way they yeah. think, and stuff, and I opened up this little jewelry box, and I'm sure, you know, I don't know what it is, and there's this eye looking at me, it's this glass <laughs> eye, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh lord, and then it explains... The fact that all my life, my dad, when he was driving, he could only turn right because he couldn't turn left because he, could, he couldn't see. So we, it would take us hours to get places. We'd have to go around in a circle, you know, because he could only turn right. You know, it's really it's kind of pathetic. You know, no wonder I turned out gay. <laughs> right. You kept turning left. I kept turning left. Uh, well, but what about the time when he asked you if he had it on straight? I don't remember that. You don't remember Oh, that? yeah, he did ask that. What do you remember? I don't remember. You told me that he put his eye in and he asked you <laughs> he asked you if his eye was in straight. And yeah. you said, yeah, but your head is crooked. <laughs> yes, that's right. I did. And honestly, that oh. kind of summed up our relationship. <laughs> right. I would say he probably rolled your, his eyes at you, but I don't know if that would have no, been he possible. No, ro- he rolled one. Just one. <laughs> he rolled one. <laughs> um... What do you, how do you how do you feel? I mean, being in the personal development space and understanding how much how important it is our parents' love and our parents' affection and, and how that often drives us to do what we do is because subconsciously we're seeking their attention or their yeah. approval or whatever. Yeah. You when you first when you built your first office building, yeah, you dedicated the street to him, yeah. So the street name is 
is tell that story if you would. Oh, sure. Um, well, at one point I decided I, it was time, and we had the resources with the company to build a building because I knew we were going to we wanted to get into manufacturing. So we bought some land, and when we did the, um, you know, we put the shovel in the ground, and the city came out and took photographs because this was good for the city. It was an expansion to the west of Missouri in St. Louis. You were the first building yeah, being first built one, in that on, whole yeah, park. Yeah, forty. And so my dad and mom came down, and they knew it was going to be, you know, it's going to be a big deal. I told them it was going to be a big deal. And then we unveiled the fact that I named the street after my dad, Lloyd King. And so um, in the car afterwards, <laughs> I said to my dad, because he showed no reaction, no emotion whatsoever. He didn't say thank you. He didn't say anything. Um, and then in the car, I said, what do you think? He said, well, it's great or whatever. I said, well, you know, it brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I had the one feels. One of my eyes, one of my eyes, both <laughs> eyes in this case. But, you know, then as you say this, it makes me think about the fact, imagine um, imagine growing, him growing as a parent and he's struggling all his life to make money and his son goes to New York, and within like five years, I was making more money than my dad. Yeah. My dad was raising seven, had seven people in the family, and I alone, in New York. But it was a New York salary, but he, I don't know that he related that. Mm-hmm. And broadcasting just paid particularly well, and that's why I wanted to get into it. Great young guy business. And he says, he says to me at one point, he says, I don't understand what you do, but I hope you never get caught. And that was his perception. Uh-huh. And I think it must have been a little hard for him to somewhat, you know, the cloud he probably had over his head that was self-imposed. There yeah. was a story he told himself. Um, to have a son that made more money than him. Hmm. But on the other hand, his wife, my mom, was encouraging us both to never accept any lack. She was she was a great cheerleader. Yeah. And he was actually a great entrepreneur. He was... A, he, in the end, I mean, ultimately, he had lots of patents. He had some very interesting visions, but he only commercialized one. He only had time to commercialize one. Well, he was an engineer. Like, his mind was He's totally engineering. an uneducated, you know, unprofessionally educated uh, engineer, but he could do fluidics. He could do uh, mechanical. He could do electrical. He could do plumbing. He taught me a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, he was always, whenever, I, as a kid, I remember whenever he was over, he was always fixing something in the house. Always fixing Taking something. it apart, putting it back together. And like, that's where he came up with his ideas. Yeah. Yeah. He did well, great. and that's, I mean, that, that was his brilliance. Yeah. Totally. Um, he, but, g- um, he gave me a lot of gifts. I, yeah. You know, I, I, we didn't get along great, but he gave me amazing gifts. Yeah. Well, I, I talked to, uh, I did a, a, a podcast with, um, a guy named Stephen Mansfield, and he talks about the father-son relationship and how uh, that that the son needs to look at his father's his father's legacy and 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 take his mandate and amplify it moving forward. Mm-hmm. And and it, you totally did that, like in a huge way, right? You took these ideas that his patents and then brought your expertise to it and amplified that and created a lot of good with it. And I think about, you know, you were talking about your legacy and, and obviously you've done very well for yourself and what kind of responsibility do I have in amplifying that? How do I increase the good in that? And how do I bring myself and my individual unique talents to the table to amplify that to an even bigger, you know? I call it the ripple effect of good. That's what I call it. Yeah. The ripple effect of good. Yeah. The expression of good that you, you do in your life 
whether it be in work or you're with your family, your children, whatever, gets amplified, like you said, over and over and over again. Yeah. There's an enormous value in seeing the good and allowing it to flow freely instead of saying, well, wait a minute, I don't like the fact that I don't have this. So I'm not going to mention the fact that courage is important. Yeah. You know, courage is important. Yeah. The story is not my story. It's just, it's it's a foundation of principle. And when you apply those principles, those qualities, you're going to get a different result. Yeah. People wonder why they keep going, you know, into a bad marriage over and over and over again. Three, four, five marriages. I knew this one guy, he had six marriages. Mm-hmm. And it's because he kept repeating the very same thing. He didn't see what his pro, you know, where he needed to learn. He didn't learn along the way. So courage, adaptability, principle, character, honesty, trust. I mean, those are the foundations that I hope that you'll carry forward. Yeah. And then I also think, you know, giving back. Uh, we've always given back at the office. We've always had charities and um, individuals that we've supported at Christmas time and. 60, 80 employees doing the, you know, all converging and putting the resources together to move forward in their donations and so forth. And then I think as, as an individual, as a retired now, um, having the opportunity to make that a principal part of my day that I'm giving back all the time, uh, finding ways as I, as now you're aware, I mean, I've been giving back, um, consulting for friends over the years that want entrepreneurs that become friends and so forth uh, and no charge. And that's just my way of saying thank you to the universe because yeah. it's been so good to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's If that's all that my five children did in their lives is create more value for other people, that's incredible success. Yeah. It's incredible fulfillment. And, you know, one could do it through coaching, one could do it through teaching, one could do it through... Um, being the best at what they do in fitness, weight loss, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, it's not necessarily, it's not a scorecard that applies to money. It's a scorecard that applies to fulfillment and mm-hmm. happiness. Mm-hmm. And if you're reflecting all those qualities, happiness and fulfillment are, are there. They, you don't even have to grab for them. They just automatically come. Yep. Yep. That's been a huge shift, I think, in, in at least from my perspective, how I've seen you operate in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Um and it was—I mean—it really came down to pre-closet, you know, in the closet versus out of the closet, and just being congruent with yourself. Yeah. Uh, that uh, to me, that was that was a real significant shift. Yeah, you know, inward lurking versus outward looking. Well, you know, when they say coming out of the closet, you know, carry that concept a little further. You know, what is just bursting down the door and saying, "Here I am." Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of songs. Here say, I am. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go into that all that kind of stuff on the stage and all, but you know what it really means is coming into the light. When you're in the closet, you're in the dark. Yeah, you know, and people that remain in the closet because of whatever the reason might be, and I'm not telling everybody they should come out. I'm just saying everybody has an opportunity to emerge gently, so to speak, um, through self awareness. They know they know the right time for them. Everybody has a different timetable. But my point is, when you're in the closet, it's, you're restricted. There is the hiding. There is. Um, all the lack of light and it's like living in a void so a lot of your life is like somebody's keeping a lid on it you know and they talk about taking the lid off and let your light shine well that's basically what you do when you throw open that door through courage so when i have a chance and there's a receptive audience and i'm talking about gays i talk to them about that the the value of honesty and principle and being out 
And where does it uh, ultimately lead? And it always leads to more love. Mm-hmm. It always leads to more uh, res- being received in a better light, uh, more mutual respect with the, with people that are straight that may or may not understand you. They they still have to admit they admire your courage because a lot of a lot of people don't have the courage to to do anything like it. Well, I, there's that great TED talk. We've talked about this before. There's a great TED talk by that um, lesbian gal who talks about coming out of the closet, but metaphorically how a lot of us are in closets. You know, oh, yeah. you might be a closet alcoholic. You might be um, a closet, uh, you know, hating your job, but going around with a smile on your face yeah. every day. Life is great. No, but you hate your job and you're just dying inside. There's a lot of closets that a lot of people are in that have nothing to do with the sexual preference. That And nothing gets resolved. Right. But closet. everything that you're saying about being in the closet yeah. is directly uh, applicable to all types of closets that people find themselves right. in. Right. So... Yeah, the courage to, to come out and just be true to yourself is is a it's seemingly a huge leap. When but. you're honest, all the available um, support can flood in into your space. When you're in the closet and you hide, nobody knows you're suffering. Only you know you're suffering. Mm-hmm. Only you know you're in fear. Only you know that you don't have the relationship you wanted. Mm-hmm. That you don't have the business opportunity you want, the job you want. So why live in that closet of alcohol or job or whatever it might be, like you're suggesting? There's no value in that. That's a waste of time. Yeah. Did you, uh, if I could ask you this personal question, I mean, as far as being in that closet and the torment that that sometimes represents, how, did you ever find yourself to be suicidal? I know that we talked about that at one point, but I, a lot of people who are gay that I've talked to have talked about it just being such a living hell that it's that seems like a no that never occurred to me I never had that issue at all but I totally relate to that if you're if your family casts you out yeah. you know at 14 15 years old when you admit that you're gay and your family the people that you naturally are born to trust with unconditional love they'd love you unconditionally they brought you into this world and then they cast you out yeah that would be pretty horrible and it would be very hard to overcome but I've seen amazing um, success stories of individuals who used it as a catalyst, catalyst for good. Correct. Because if their parents can't see past that, can't see that unconditional love and acceptance is more powerful than any belief. Mm-hmm. You know, and I talk about trust. Uh, I talk about beliefs and faith. And you know, a lot of people um, find that there are elements of their churches and the religion that. The churches are meant to support us on our spiritual journey, but they're based on beliefs, and the beliefs change. You know, all of a sudden, oh, it's okay to get, it's okay to get uh, divorced. You know, now everybody's okay. Oh, and now it's okay to have those gay, gay guys come to church too. <laughs> it's all about modifying your beliefs. Well, what does that do with principle and trust and the the lasting qualities that we're really supposed to be building on? Mm-hmm. Well, it just says that in that case. Faith is really what we should be focusing on and see through the beliefs because the beliefs are based on stories. So faith is what we want to have. We want to have faith in the universal God or the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I heard this the other day and I thought, and this comes into my thought a lot, uh, that prayer is the call and intuition is the answer. Mm -hmm. So as you pray, that's a call asking for whatever it might be. And I'm not saying looking for, I'm not looking for a car, 
Okay, I'm, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for guidance. Right. And the guidance comes through my gut. And you know, you've heard that all your life. Trust your gut. Yeah. Well, you know what? If your gut is really a response to divine power. It's something bigger than ourselves. It's yeah. the universe. Yeah. So, um, I, I think, in my in my particular case, that this coming out for me, and the uh, opening the door has been a flood of the light into me and out of me. Mm-hmm. So it took off all the limitations. So like you mentioned a moment ago, if you're in the closet, you you can't get any of that light. You can't give and you can't receive. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder that we say, oh, that person is stuck. You know, they're stuck because yeah. they won't do the work. Because mm-hmm. perhaps, not doing it without judgment, perhaps the fear or the pain of that they know that they'd have to go to is so great that they can't go there. Mm-hmm. They don't have the courage or the determination to bust down that door and go to the pain. Mm-hmm. I've been to the pain. I, I figured out what it was. And once you understand, this is, this is like when your mother passed. I went through uh, resentment to God. I went through grief, of course. I went through some depression. And there are the five phases of grief that you can Google for. And if and nobody told me about this yeah. until like way after I'm singing in this court, men's chorus and they're singing the song on the, about the five phases of grief and I'm thinking, what the heck is that? And once I understood it, this is like three or four years after Sally passed mm-hmm. and I thought, if I had known that, if I had the equation to being happy and I knew what the equation was because I'd done self-awareness mm-hmm. or the five phases of grief in this case, mm-hmm. I could have done one on Monday, <laughs> one on Tuesday, done one on Wednesday and I would have been done by Friday. <laughs> So why not accelerate the opportunity for happiness and abundance? Get get this trash aside. Yeah. This is the legacy baggage we don't have to carry. Totally. Once you understand it, if you invest in fulfillment through self through self awareness, you can cast all that baggage off. Yeah, you know, everybody in the airline business charges for excess baggage, and we all are charged for <laughs> excess baggage. Yeah. We insist on carrying. Yeah. And everybody's telling us what it is. Our family members will tell us what the excess baggage is. Because you always do that. You always say that. You always whatever. They tell you all the time. That's when you need to say, okay, why do I do it? And once you have that equation, I knew that with broken trust, there was pain. There was uh, disconnectedness. I knew all the negatives associated with it. But through forgiveness and gratitude and living my life through more transparently and um, giving more, creating more value... All that was diminished. So mm-hmm. the baggage got smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. What I find is, like the mental image that I have is, we're all at point A, whatever point A is for each person. Mm-hmm. And we're all trying to get to point B. Or we're all trying to get to light, if you will, quote unquote, right? right? right. Whatever that light means to you. It could be spiritual awareness. It could be financial abundance. It could be great relationship. Whatever that light is. could be health and, and six-pack abs, whatever, right? Yeah. Your, your sense of truth, your sense of guiding, right? So we're all at point A trying to get to our fullest potential, right? right. right. And the, the, the problem that I think a lot of people have, and this kind of relates to what you were just saying, which is, we're not really truly being honest with what point A is. So while mm. we're actually at point A, mm. we think that we're, you know, oh, I'm not really an alcoholic. Right. You know, so, or I'm not really absolutely miserable with my job. Right. Right. That's a false sense of what's actually true. And by denying that, you can't actually get to the light because your, your proximity's off. Right. Right. So, you're in denial. 
You're in denial. You're in denial and so <laughs> your sense of direction, your compass is skewed. Right. So when you think you're going towards the light because the light is directly in front of you, it's really not because you're in a, a phantom location outside of point A. Yeah, right. right. So until you, quote unquote, come out of the closet... And more practically speaking, until you have the courage to be a hundred percent brutally honest with with where you're at, I hate my job, or I drink way too much, or I'm gay and people don't know about it, and I'm tired of making up lies, fibs all the time. Yeah, right. right. Until you own that truth, you're never really at point A, and therefore you can never really calibrate yourself to that higher, fuller potential, right. whatever that may be. So, I just you know, the amount of growth that I have perceived in you and your ability to not only, I mean, share, share real quick how much you weighed and, and how much that. Yeah. After, after your mother passed, I was at 320 pounds, which was a direct reflection of my thought Yeah. because I was fearful. I was hiding. I was unhappy. I'd gone through a lot of stress at the office with the infringement issues with our patents and put on all this weight. And, um, I was invited by my kids, your sister and, um, your brother down to Albuquerque and uh, to begin to understand nutrition. And then I couldn't refuse because I had nothing else to do at that point because I was semi-retired at the point. And I went down there and I started working on that and I would walk and I, I had a ritual that I would do every day. And I put on my headset and I knew the, I'd start out with the same song and it was all about the highway. And I was referring to that or in, inferring from that that it was the highway of life, the journey of life. And I didn't have a lot of time left. And the time I had left, I deserved to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So for the next year and a half, actually two or three years, two years, I guess it was, I got 150 pounds off and began to live my life. And then that probably was part of the, you know, the metamorphosis of my thought that built the courage to come out. Well, I would I would say that it wasn't the nutrition per se. It was the fact that you were finally honest with yourself. Like you just said, I deserve to be healthy. That yeah. self-love and self-respect was not being reflected yeah. earlier when you constantly went to the freezer and, yeah, and ice cream for, yeah. for a temporary hit of love and uh, and ah, uh, sure. you know. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So yeah. um, I, I say that because we're so conditioned to go for the new fad, the new diet, this, the new, you know, technique on that when really it has to do with your, your identity and who you believe you are and the self-respect and love and the honesty and the courage to own where you're at. Right. Right. I think, you know, I look around the world and I, I see obesity in the States and not, not as much when I travel around the world. And I think it's a, uh, a direct reflection of my, of the thought or the lack of thought and it could, you know, there's no excuse not to read Google, drop in Google and say weight loss, you know, low carb diet or whatever it might be. Right. There's no excuse for that. Uh, and so it could be laziness because it's, that's where we are. We don't know better. It's what we don't, it's, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. So my heart goes out with empathy and sympathy to people that are dealing with the food addiction because it truly is an addiction. But if they refuse to help themselves, that's unfortunate because they're shortchanging everybody in their lives. It isn't just themselves. Well, sure, but I, I have empathy too because like you just said, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so people don't know how to help themselves. I mean, if you look in your exact experience, it wasn't that you couldn't find a book that taught you how to eat a little bit better. Right. You were going to food for an emotional need. Right. An irrational emotional need. So there's an addiction to, I, I feel 
comfort when I eat food. Oh, yeah. Well, why do I feel uncomfortable in the first place? Because I don't feel loved. That's the underlying That's, issues. The that was the underlying issues. hidden issue. And yep. until you actually owned your truth right. and said, I deserve love, that's when you shed 150 pounds right. of, of literal baggage right. that you were carrying right. around. I often tell people, and you've heard this before, like in the span of 18 months, I lost my mom and half of my dad yeah. <laughs> because you shed the weight. You shed the weight so quickly yeah. that it was beyond obvious that it, it was because of that transition point, that, that milestone in your life, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I think that's very true. Um, and then the continued ability to keep the weight more or less off is because of the self-awareness and just realizing that, um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of the baggage I've been dealing with is the legacy baggage. And we all do. You know, it's whatever we carried from childhood into our adult life. Yeah. And uh, recently I had an aha moment relative to this situation with my mother and her being raised by an alcoholic dad. And how did that affect the way she could love or not love? And I suppose, you know, I, if you dig deep, and I'm just thinking out loud now, but if you dig deep, the lack of love the unconditional love that generally comes from parents and the broken trust um, may have been partially responsible for why I have the food addiction, why I've always loved food. Because I go for it, for comfort, and it never, ever gives me the satisfaction I think it's going to give me. Long term, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that tell you? I mean, relative to relationship, my mother's relationship with her dad, she kept going to him for love, and every time it was never given to her what she wanted. Mm -hmm. She had in her head to what she wanted, and it never was satisfied. Mm -hmm. So lack of satisfaction may be um, the underpinnings of this addiction that I've had. I, I, I have to admit, I do love food. I do love food. <laughs> well, I mean, the, I mean, the ice cream is ice cream. Like right. you can't deny. I, I think I've gone from pizza and popcorn yeah. and hot dogs to a little bit of higher quality food. You know, just thinking about. It. I had chicken last night, which was delicious, and yeah. some green vegetables, and I kept my portions low and being grateful for the opportunity to have a little self-discipline yeah. and at the same time respecting the vehicle that gives me life. Yeah. And that's my body. Well, the the, the saying, uh, you can't always zig every once in a while you got to zag. I mean, yeah. that's I think that's appropriate because, yeah. come on. Yeah, once in a while, sure. There's nice no man. problem with that. Yeah. There will, but also, I was raised in a family where we didn't have enough money, so there wasn't always enough food. And if you sat the wrong part of the table, by the time the potatoes got around you, they were gone. Mm. So if you didn't grab it right away... See, I think that probably played a lot into it, too. Yeah. Just just the idea of indulgence in something that you didn't have. Yeah. And that colors everything, well. you know, yeah. in life. You know, whether you... You know, what, what when it comes to money, that could be a... You know, that could be a real issue over time if you don't make the course correction along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But, you know, I think self-awareness, in this case, coming out and self-awareness is like, I always use this analogy with people, that if you're on a cruise ship, and the cruise ship is your journey through life, you can't turn that thing on a dime. You can't make a U-turn. Right. But you can make an adjustment. You can turn one or two degrees, and through a small decision every day, small decision, and 10 years later, you're at a whole different destination. Mm -hmm. If you don't like where you're going, it's a lack of health, and you're fat, and you're unhappy, and you don't have the relationship and love that you want... Well, then do a course correction and just do a little one. Do one or two degrees and you're going to end up at that beautiful island of happiness in the sunshine, surrounded by people who love you, 
and you're able to give give love right back. Well, I th- I think of it, using that analogy. I I think if you're young, a one or two degree switch can make a big impact yeah. over the course of your life because you'll end up very different. But if you're middle aged or older, like it, it may take what seemingly feels like a dramatic shift. I think the older you are, if you if oh at my age I'm screwed, <laughs> I'm totally screwed. <laughs> well, I mean, think of the dramatic shifts that you've made, and and how how much pain and and courage that it took to push through that to get back to where you felt was your 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 north star path, if you will. You know, for me, it's really interesting because I'm 71, and um, you know, you could buy into the belief that there's not a lot of time left and the course correction needs to happen pretty fast. You better grab this relationship, whatever it might be, as fast as you can. And then through it, through education and life experiences, you know, you get to the point where you see it's more about not settling. And when you put not settling ahead of everything else, that you're not going to have a relationship that's mediocre, that if, you, if it isn't 100%, don't go there. So what if I hold that standard so high of not settling that I don't end up with a relationship and I, you know, I have 20 years left, whatever it might be, I hope. Um, what happens? And I, what I've noticed is that because I have the discipline of saying to myself, I've got the standard of not settling. This is who I want to find a relationship with and these are the qualities I want expressed and yeah. so forth. You find yourself in a different space because as you mature in your emotional maturity, you find love is everywhere. Love is coming from your family. Love is coming from your business associates. Love is coming from everywhere. Stranger on the street. Yeah. yeah. And you don't, you may not feel you have to have as much of the physical love as you need the emotional love. And the emotional love then becomes abundant because you set this high standard. Yeah. So let's talk about it. If you're 30 years old and you have this, this goal of express, self-expression in a relationship and you have certain standards you want met and are you going to settle in, in whether you're 30 or 70, I think the result is still the same because if you settle, you always know you settle. You've always, you'll always know you settle. Um, but if you have set that standard, it may take longer to find the right person, but if it isn't, if you're just living your life fullest, I, I believe that that's when, the smile's on your face and they'll see all of who you are and it'll happen when you didn't expect it. Yeah. The least likely spot. It won't be at a bar when you're out looking for a relationship. <laughs> right. You know, you don't find great relationships at bars. Right. You know? I did at the grocery store <laughs> last week. I fell in Freezer love with out. Ben and Jerry. Out, yeah. <laughs> great relationship. Great relationship. Hogan Doss, yeah, not them, but Ben and Jerry. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, well, I, th- I think a lot of this does come back to balance too, because if your mindset is always, um, don't settle and therefore there's something always better, like it, you can be unanchored, uh, yeah. like there's a, to me, this goes back to the, like me feeling like I'm a little bit between you and mom where mom was very anchored and, and had solid Christian fixed beliefs on certain things which I find a lot of value in, yep. right? But then also the idea to think bigger, think outside of the box, challenge your own uh, belief systems to the ultimate root core to the, where it's maybe even scary. Like, and having the wisdom to know when to stay anchored and when to l- let go and, right. and challenge your own beliefs. Right. So, Can I jump in there a second? Why not? Okay, I'll try it. 
let me say, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to brag, but I think that was the perfect way to re- raise you, raise your children, because the foundational qualities that your mother expressed are those like principle, honesty, love, trust, yeah. and Karen giving grace. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> All those qualities are undeniably they're unshakable. Mm-hmm. This is this is earthquake proof qualities that she expressed and you lo- were taught mm-hmm. every day. B- Bible based approach. You don't have to be Bible based approach. I mean, some people are not in the Bible, but I'm just saying those qualities, whether they're Bible based or not, are unshakable. Mm-hmm. That's a foundation you can build. A whole skyscraper on mm-hmm. a whole life of a skyscraper and shooting and soaring to the stars. Mm-hmm. Without that, without those foundational qualities, you find cracks. And the more you don't have those foundational qualities, the more cracks there are, mm-hmm. and the more likely you're going to fall into one. Mm-hmm. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, uh, there was one other thing I wanted to just ask you about it in. Being gay, you are not the um, stereotypical gay person because you're not uber liberal. You right. know, you lean right um, politically. How many? What, fiscally responsible. Yes, I like the financially. We have to be responsible financially. Yep. But I'm socially liberal. Yes, I I feel the same way actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. But that doesn't necessarily fit the cultural narrative. No. How doesn't. how often, or what percentage would you say of at least the gay friends that you know, actually have conservative values? I can't put a number on that. I I, I don't really know because I don't know that many. Because in some of the people that I've met through you, that there seems to be a real clear sense of family values, and you know. You know, I think that's an interesting point because the qualities that I see expressed. The men that I know, most of them love family. They they're attracted to family. Right. They um, they want a great relationship. So trust is important. Honesty is important in a relationship. That's what they're seeking. They they may or may not know it. And that's my point. I think a lot of them, because they choose. I mean, we have two labels that we can choose from. Is one can be a liberal and one can be conservative. Now, which one are you? Yeah. Well, you know what. Nobody is all of it. It's like masculine yeah. and feminine. How many qualities, how much, how much of you is masculine, how much of you is a feminine uh, uh, reflection or whatever? Right. At any given moment, it all changes. So I think maybe, I think a lot of gays that perceive themselves to be liberal have a lot of conservative values that are innate in their qual- in their character. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, this is to me just a healthy conversation because I think culturally there's an opportunity for us to break out of those those cultural norms, right. the boxes that, that are, you know, the media tends to portray all the time. Totally, and totally. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite stories about you, when I tell people, you know, that I have a gay father and like, well, what was that like? And I tell them that it was that one time, you know, living in St. Louis, you kind of have to be a St. Louis Cardinals fan. It's yeah. a religion here. And so we were at, um, we were at the playoff game. You know where I'm going with this? No, but... <laughs> Maybe. Go ahead. We were at we were at a playoff game. This was many years ago. This is back when uh, the star franchise player Albert Pujols was was still on the team. Yeah. Uh, biggest name in baseball, best player in baseball. We're in a heated playoff game. It's late in the game. 
We get a guy on base, and Pujols is coming up to bat, and we're down by one run. So everybody rises to their feet. It's an incredible moment. You know, the anticipation, the intensity is building. You know, is he going to be able to pull through or not? And so we're all standing, you know, and I stood up, and and then I feel a tap on my shoulder, (laughs) and I look over to you, and you said... Hey, ever I ever told you about my jalapeno cornbread recipe? <laughs> I said that is my relationship to my dad. As far as no, you haven't. Let's let's let's, let's take a moment and talk about that. Albert, can you just hold that? Yeah, pose? hold that. Right, right yeah, I can see right Albert now. put the bat down and go. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Oh, yeah, I want to hear about that. Yeah, too. jalapenos, yeah, cornbread, that cornbread. That sounds oh my gosh. Did fabulous. I, really say that? I said that. Is yeah. that true? Oh, it's one hundred percent true. Okay, I can't make that up. Well, I I think, you know, my response to that would be that the world is made up of all kinds of individuals. There are uh, the masculine, if we're going to define the masculine, it's sports oriented, it's a a grab life and gusto and, you know, it's bam, it's all, you know, macho, macho, macho. You you nailed it, by the way. That's exactly. That's what I thought. That's it. But but the reality is there's a, a, a... a variety, an infinite variety of expressions of manhood yeah. and masculine and yeah. a combination of masculine with feminine. So um, I like recipes. So, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Bam. Recipes, recipes for ba- success. Bam and gusto. You know, I, I, think that, I think it's also, you know, I, I used to, in New York, I would always gravitate up. But I witnessed, because when I go to lunch, I'd want to go to lunch with people smarter than me or had a better position than me because I'd learn from them all the time. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that are fearful to do that or they gravitate, they, they stay on the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, and other people that will even gravitate down because they feel more comfortable because they're with people that appear that think makes they're smarter. Makes them feel better. It yeah. makes them all feel better. Right, yeah. right. So I, I think that's an interesting uh, recipe for success. And if you constantly are reaching for the stars, you're learning from people that are smarter from you. You know, it rubs off over time. Proximity is power. Yeah. Um, I see what you did there with the recipe. That was a nice segue. No problem. Um, <laughs> so one last thing. You said you bought a catcher's mitt. You remember this? Yeah. 35 years ago. Sure. I, I forget why. <laughs> Why did I do that? Exactly. That was for you, right? Yes. That's I never, We were supposed to I'll throw the baseball. It. it was amazing. You came it was amazing. You came to me and you said, "Hey, I bought a catcher's mitt. We should go throw the baseball." I don't think we've ever thrown the baseball. In fact, when you told me that you came out, you remember this? Yeah. You yeah. told me you were gay. We were in your office and then you said, "Now you know why I never threw the baseball with you." And I remember sitting there thinking like, does does gravity not work for gay people? Like, are you going to throw it and it's just going to float away? How does that... We could still throw a baseball. I never, Which is partly... Like, your relationship with Tom was great because he was such a diehard baseball fan. I was like, you can be a baseball fan and, and still be gay. What's, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but it just shows you the diversity of gay because I wasn't interested in sports. Well, I think more to, to the point, it was the diversity of manhood, of people. Right. 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 Not to mention your mother, because she was much better baseball than I was. Well, I mean, she was the one that really established my love of baseball, yeah. but coming back to St. Louis and whatnot. But that brings me to another point. My mother said to me at one point, she said, "Why didn't you ever tell us you were gay?" I said, "Why didn't you tell me I was gay?" <laughs> right. It's like fourth, I could have used a little fourth grade. I'm skipping rope with the girls. You know, I'm making <laughs> hot pads at summer camp. 
I mean, give me a break. It was pretty much on the written on the wall, and nobody told me. Yeah. You know, I think people were not very kind back then. They yeah. should have said, hey, Herb, you're pretty gay. <laughs> Matter of fact, one boy did. He said, you know, you carry your books like a girl. I took those books right off my chest where I was holding them like the girls. I put yeah. them down my waist, and from then on, I hid. Really? That was like fifth grade. Oh, that's interesting. I, I'll never forget that. That was a, a, a turning point. It was a big turning point. I started hiding. Because you felt ashamed that you carried your books like a girl. Because I was feminine. I expressed some feminine qualities, uh-huh. and I, I was not going to do that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, when you did come out, that was right after I had my son, Dean. Yeah. And uh, I definitely looked at that and, and really challenged myself, like, well, what is masculinity? What is manhood? What is yeah. being a father? What is all those things? And I definitely have gotten to that point where it, it definitely, you know, obviously it does come in many different shapes and colors and flavors or whatever you want to say. But I do think that there is this, this maybe goes back to the, the, the anchoring that mom taught us, like the principles, but also the ability to, to grow and learn and, and break out of those norms. But the idea, I think there is structure to what it is to be a man. And, but I think there's different expressions of those principles, right? I agree. So, um, anyway, it's, that's maybe a whole nother podcast call, but anyway, that uh, we're, we're probably a little bit long on time. We know we got other things going on, but I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, and, likewise. Uh, maybe we can oil that glove and. and <laughs> Where get, is that glove? That that's a running joke with me and my friends. By the way, is it? Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. Where's your glove? <laughs> yeah. Or oh, they'll say, you know. Oh, your dad's got the glove today. Yeah. Right? Dude, yeah. We're still working it in. We're still, yeah. it's, it's four, you know, this glove is like 30 years old and it's yeah. still as stiff as a rock. Doesn't that just represent giving and taking and people throw the ball back and forth? I mean, that's what we do in life. I mean, that's what we just did for the last hour. In theory, but it's sitting there with like zero <laughs> track record. It looks brand new, right? Yeah, it it's looks totally, totally brand new. It's one of those muscles I didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. But you've done a great job with baseball. You've done a great job with I've coaching a and hell of a job with baseball. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, it's just all good stuff. All good stuff. All good stuff. Well, thanks again, Dad, for the conversation. Maybe we can revisit this some other time. I think we covered everything. There's yeah. nothing more to talk about. That's true. You've got your eyes on straight. <laughs> yeah, just uh, this is this is going to go viral. I can just feel. it. Oh my gosh! Easily, <laughs> easily. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yep. Thanks Pleasure. again. Bye.